Welcome to People in Place. My name is Mason. Thanks again for joining me this week. I'm uh, relieved to see people coming back each each time and uh, listening and um, and engaging with these thoughts. For this episode, I'm going to be reading a fairly long excerpt from the uh, book by Wendell Berry, Sex Economy, Economy, Freedom, and Community. So bear with me here, but then afterwards I'll be discussing a little bit of my concerns for the community here and the ecology or the environment uh, that are tied into the economy. So here it is. In talking about health, we have thus begun to talk about community. But we must take care to see how this standard of health enlarges and clarifies the idea of community. If we speak of a healthy community, we cannot be speaking of a community that is merely human. We are talking about a neighborhood of humans in a place, plus the place itself, its soil, its water, its air, and all the families and tribes of the non-human creatures that belong to it. If the place is well-preserved, if its entire membership, natural and human, is present in it, and if the human economy is in practical harmony with the nature of the place, then the community is healthy. A diseased community will be suffering natural losses that become, in turn, human losses. A healthy community is sustainable. It is, within reasonable limits, self-sufficient, and within reasonable limits, self-determined. That is, free of tyranny. Community, then, is an indispensable term in any discussion of the connection between people and the land. A healthy community is a form that includes all the local things that are connected by the larger, ultimately mysterious form of the creation. In speaking of community, then, we are speaking of a complex connection, not only among human beings or between humans and their homeland, but also between the human economy and nature, between forests or prairie and field or orchard, and between troublesome creatures and pleasant ones. All neighbors are included. From the standpoint of such a community, any form of land abuse, a clear cut, a strip mine, an overplowed or overgrazed field is an alien and as threatening as it would be from the standpoint of an ecosystem. From such a standpoint, it would be plain that land abuse reduces the possibilities of local life, just as do chain stores, absentee owners, and consolidated schools. One obvious advantage of such an idea of community is that it provides a common ground and a common goal between conservationists and small-scale land users. The long la- the long-standing division between conservationists and farmers, ranchers, and other private small business people is distressing because it is to a considerable extent false. It is readily apparent that the economic forces that threaten the health of ecosystems and survival of species are equally threatening to economic democracy and the survival of human neighborhoods. I'm going to pause there. I might continue reading uh, the last little bit at the end of the episode. But for now, I want to discuss that section. This is from the chapter Conservation and Local Economy, if you were curious. And if you haven't read this book yet, I've recommended it multiple times um, because I highly 
it, it's influenced my thought a lot. Or at least it's encouraged me to think about certain topics. Uh, the first concern I have, uh, based off this reading, uh, relating to where I find myself currently in Crowsness Pass, is the reliance this area has on the natural resources that are here. It's natural resource abundant, which is great, but the current extraction methods do do not seem to be having all that positive of an effect on the local ecology. When we first got here, there's a lot of mountain biking trails that are just south of where we're living. And my wife and I, we we biked up this one trail, we got to the top of the mountain, and we kind of looked past the trees uh, to see what was on the other side. And on the one side of the hill was the ski hill where all the trail, all the mountain bike trails are and where the view of the town is. And then on the other side, there's this one road and then a bunch of clear cuts. And I found this kind of shocking. I, I knew it happened, but I had never really seen it kind of literally in our backyard. And it felt, felt a little disheartening if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, because I, I got here and I viewed this area as just being pristine and like somewhat untouched and uh, almost free of the shackles of human development. Uh, however, that is uh, <laughs> very far from the truth considering how long coal mining and just mining in general has been occurring here. So to see to see the clear cut, that was kind of my first like, oh, okay, this is this is happening and this is a reality that is very uh, something that has to be reconciled. The other interesting point, for those of you who don't live in Alberta, there's a very strong uh, just appreciation or sentiment towards uh, fossil fuels of all kinds, <laughs> whether that be natural gas or coal or I'm drawing a blank on what other ones there are. Um, this, so you'll see that there's there's shirts and sweaters and uh, um, apparel that says "I heart Alberta oil and gas" or "I heart Alberta oil sands," things along those lines. And this is all intended to uh, bolster support for the economy that is provided through the extraction of those resources. So there's that side of it that I grew up seeing in Bonneville quite regularly. And then I came here and it was, I, uh, or is it, what did it say? It said, Crow's Nest Pass is a coal town or we heart Crow's Nest Pass coal. Uh, something along those lines. And I was like, okay, that's interesting because coal is even a more contentious uh, resource than uh, natural gas or oil and uh, and so uh, talking to a few people it's it's a pretty loud minority that have that sentiment but nonetheless it's it's alive and well <laughs> you see it pretty regularly whether you're driving by homes or or on people's vehicles as bumper stickers and what's interesting about that is that there isn't actually any coal extraction that is 
on a large scale happening in Alberta. There's a lot of cold um, exploration that's been denied or that's been put on hold. And I see this as a really positive thing for this region because I think it would be very easy to overly enthusiastically <laughs> extract that for the sake of economic um improvement for this area because this area hasn't necessarily seen the economic success as many other parts of the province that have had access to natural resources um, such as the oil sands and uh, regions that have pipelines going through them or even just across the border there's a town called sparwood and they have uh, a huge coal mining operation which is where this sentiment of loving coal comes from because a lot of the people living here commute uh, 45 minutes, half an hour to these jobs. And so it's that um, economic provision that the coal brings that is creating this uh, appreciation and I guess admiration for this uh, the extraction of the resource. But what I just... Uh, read recently was that there's a, a gorgeous mountain lake called window mountain lake that we camped at this summer and apparently the pollution there is to the same degree as lakes and rivers that are downwind of the coal mines in, in sparwood and i think this has to do with the the air the wind currents and and how the wind carries that coal dust and moves it but it also raises the concern of how much worse would that be for our local bodies of water and our local ecosystems if that was even closer to home and that makes me really uneasy i uh water is something we need and so if we're polluting it for the sake of uh, economic prosperity, our economic prosperity sure won't matter too long if we're all getting sick from pollution in our food systems and in our water systems. Regarding uh, resources and how they impact communities, you drive in the opposite direction of the coal field or coal mine and you see uh, the rolling hills, uh, the foothills, and then you see on top of them a lot of wind turbines. And this is another concern, and it's been advocated for a lot of the time that wind energy is like a green energy. When the reality is these wind turbines require a lot of, a lot of materials that come from faraway places and a lot of maintenance and do not provide consistent sources of energy or energy that is able to be harnessed and used conveniently. So although they may seem like a green solution for the time being, it's not a long-term solution in my opinion. And I, I saw another article that was just talking about how they've just started discussing solutions for wind, turbi wind turbine recycling which it is like, okay, well, these things have a lifetime. They have a, a shelf use or a, <laughs> a best before date, I guess, of how long they'll be functional or like worth the time to repair. 
similar to vehicles at what point is the value does the value of the vehicle outweigh the cost to repair it and that to me makes me worried that our landscape is going to be littered with unusable wind turbines that uh, currently obstruct the gorgeous views and will likely obstruct them far longer than we can imagine because the companies will not want to pay to have them removed or repurposed or recycled. And so we have on one side of the Crozenus Pass, we have the coal situation, which concerns me uh, just south of us and kind of all around us. We have the clear cutting uh, concern that I have and then uh, east of us are the windmills. So all of these natural resources have provided this area with somewhat of an economy. However, it is leaving the area, I think, in worse shape than what it could be. And as someone new here, I, I don't I don't claim to know the, the history and the, the reason behind these decisions or what this region would even look like or would it be inhabitable without having these these jobs that have been provided. I'm not too sure. And this is where I think time and a place is important. So you gain that context and you gain that understanding of who makes these decisions and why are they being made and and are they actually benefiting the community more than they are costing it? I think that's a really tough question to answer. And I'm looking forward to observing it and having more conversations with people in the area about it and figuring out like why has the community shifted their mindset or their mentality to wanting a coal mine closer to home or wanting to have an abundance of windmills or uh, and, and then like is the cost that they have on our environment our ecosystems uh as significant as it seems or are there plans for rejuvenating these areas and, and replenishing uh, bringing back to life the areas that have been exploited or have been improperly used over the years I personally hope so um, but I think time will tell I think for a lot of Alberta It'll be interesting to see how we steward the cleanup of <laughs> the natural resource extraction we have advocated for and we have uh, prospered from significantly. But I'm going to finish by reading uh, the last little bit of what I have highlighted in this uh, chapter. Uh, closing remarks, if you like these episodes let me know it it will help encourage me to keep creating them uh, or even share them with a friend our uh, regular listens are pretty stable uh, which is great but i'd love it if more people were able to hear it or maybe even uh, share with me what would make listening easier for you uh, with all that said uh, here is the rest of the paragraphs I believe that the most necessary question now for cons- <laughs> let me try that again. I believe that the most necessary question now for conservationists, 
for small-scale farmers, ranchers, and business people, for politicians interested in the survival of democracy, and for consumers, is this. What must the economy of a healthy community based in agriculture or forestry What must the economy of a healthy community based in agriculture or forestry? It cannot be the present colonial economy in which only raw materials are exported and all necessities and pleasures are imported. To be healthy, land-based communities will need to add value on local products, they will need to supply local demand, and they will need to be reasonably self-sufficient in food, energy, pleasure, and other basic requirements. Once a person understands the necessity of healthy local communities and community econ economies, it becomes easy to imagine a range of reforms that might bring them into being. It is at least conceivable that useful changes might be started or helped along by consumer demands in the cities. This, uh, there is, for example, already evidence of a growing concern among urban consumers about the quality and purity of food. Once this demand grows extensive and competent enough, it will have the power to change agriculture if there is enough left of agriculture by then to be changed. And that's where I'm going to end it. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Peace.